just so you know that <clears throat> I often am concerned about the worship team when we have the time of the Lord's Supper and uh, they're going to be partaking in the second service. So, um, How good it is to be together and uh, uh, some of the songs that uh, we've been singing this morning have been so precious to grab our attention and get us thinking about how incredibly supreme our Lord Jesus is and uh, I hope that I can maintain your gaze there for much longer as we open up God's Word today. Just want to uh, make, you, make you aware of the fact that um, today in the second service there's going to be a, uh, an evacuation practice of the children downstairs. And I mentioned that in the first service because sometimes people cross over and uh, we just want you to know that the ushers have an incredibly important role in our church family. And uh, both in the first and in the second service. And uh, they are being uh, oriented and reoriented in these days to be aware of some of the key part that they play. Particularly if there is a fire and parents are, are not allowed to go downstairs. They're to meet their children in the parking lot. And the, the ushers along with the children's staff are responsible for that and so so incredibly important as you can imagine if we had a whole bunch of people rushing down the stairs when people are trying to get out of the the building from downstairs it would create a lot of chaos so I mentioned that because we don't talk about that very often and praise the Lord we've had no need to uh, but we do want to be very ready for any kind of uh, an emergency that happened and uh, also I just want you to draw attention to your, uh, your, your insert in your bulletin. There's a couple. One is the outline for the sermon today in the green sheet of paper. But the other one is what Doug announced this morning on November 17th. Uh, the, the Good Sense Seminar, uh, a great opportunity for us to, to re-examine this area of our lives. Seldom do we take a sustained period of time to look at a theme that God speaks so much of in His Word, like money and how we treat money. And so uh, I would encourage you to take that home. Uh, maybe you're not ready to commit today and sign up, but take it home, put it on your fridge or something so you don't forget about it. You'll be hearing more about it, but I would trust that uh, God would lead many people to engage in that weekend together. Well, we're in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and if you'll turn, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we're going to continue now in uh, this next portion of Scripture. And I want to add that as we begin to turn there, I think the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> because when, we, when I charted out the, the, the Gospel of Mark, and I didn't even know what Sunday was going to fall, or Thanksgiving was going to fall on, but isn't it great that God says we're going to talk about fasting on the day of feasting? We're going to be talking about fasting on Thanksgiving. And uh, it's very interesting because I think in many ways, though, uh, as we will look at today, fasting is meant to be a kind of spiritual feasting. And so we're going to talk about the New Testament fast that Jesus teaches on in the passage we're going to look at today. But to begin with, we're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 2, just to uh, set the context. Very important. And I would ask you to stand with me now as we hear God's word read. Mark, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. 
Jesus, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new patch, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. So this morning we're going to be talking about fasting and um, all the world over you can travel and you can find all kinds of different practices on fasting from other countries, from other religions and so on. And it's a, it's a global practice. Perhaps our, our culture uh, observes, observes less of it than many cultures around the world. People fast for emotional, physical, psychological and spiritual reasons. Some observe, uh, we hear about a cleansing fast. We hear about people talking about that, uh, dietary changes in order to kind of cleanse your, your body. Some adjust their lifestyle for health reasons. Uh, many articles are written on the web for about therapeutic reasons for fasting and so on. There are also political reasons for fasting. Hunger strikes when activists use fasting as a nonviolent form of protest. Religious groups all around the globe have various forms of fasting. The Quran, for example, calls Muslims to fast during the month of Ramadan, abstaining from food, drink, and marital relations from dawn until sunset. For many Roman Catholics, as well as people from other mainline Christian traditions, the period of Lent, the 40 days before Easter, is a time of fasting and prayer in preparation for Easter a time when people are encouraged to renounce something or sacrifice something in order that they might devote themselves more to, to devotion to Christ, identify with Jesus in his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and so on. So the Bible has lots to say about fasting as well, and we're going to look more at the New Testament this morning, which really distinguishes of, uh, the, the kind of fasting we observe than the Old Testament does. We could look at Scripture, and we won't, but... Uh, all kinds of reasons why in the Bible people fasted to express grief, to strengthen prayer, to discern the guidance of God, to humble ourselves before God, to express repentance, to look for what God has for your, the will for your life, to serve the needs of others, to overcome temptation, and the list is long. But this morning we're going to be primarily focusing on a key passage of Scripture that we've looked at that has to do with... Um, the New Testament form of fasting. I think I agree with John Piper when he says that the text that we're looking at, which is found in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, that this is the most important text in the New Testament for, on, on the theme of fasting. 
And so we're going to look at that today. Let's uh, look at, uh, in your outline, we're going to start to talk about John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, though. Um, As we look at Christian fasting, I want you to notice from the text that we've read, the very first comparison that, that bystanders, especially the religious leaders, made of Jesus. When they started comparing Jesus to someone, the first reference point that they had was John the Baptist. And it's interesting that in Mark chapter 2, that Mark intentionally puts this story of the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, and Jesus going to Matthew's house where he is eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. And then the very next verse, right after that, in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And not just like at that moment, but in a general way, Jesus was the one that was known for feasting, was the one known for sitting with sinners and tax collectors and eating and drinking, and John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were known for fasting. See, that's the the point Mark's trying to get across here. And um, the super-religious people of Jesus' day judged him for not being very spiritual, for not fasting like the Pharisees did or like John the Baptist's disciples did. That he didn't have a regimented legalistic fast to tell his disciples, you need to do this. And so um, they're criticizing him. How come your disciples aren't fasting? They were asking Jesus. There's a very interesting verse in Luke chapter uh, 7 and verse 33 where Jesus says this, He says, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus is pointing out that there was no way to please the critics. John was too weird. He lived in the wilderness. He ate wild locusts and honey. He wore clothing made of camel hair, and they said he must be demon possessed. He must be something wrong with him. Jesus lived in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, ate and drank with the common people, hung out with sinners, and they said he was a glutton and a drunkard. You know, he wasn't spiritual enough, and so on. And uh, of course, there was was no winning in this scenario. If you live as a slave to the opinions of people around you, you will be forever adjusting your life, and you'll never be at peace. You cannot drive your car forward by looking in the rearview mirror. And so you cannot be living according to the public opinion polls of what spirituality might look like. Jesus did not lay down rules on religious practice. And this is why he ran into so many problems with the religious leaders of his day. So in answering his critics as to why his disciples were not fasting, he just gives one brief explanation, and in the middle of it he uses three different metaphors to describe it. But uh, let's take a look at fasting like a self-righteous Pharisee because that is really the kind of comparison that is being made of Jesus. First of all, I want to say that it could be that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting at this moment because we've already been told that John the Baptist has been arrested and he's been put in prison and he's about to be beheaded, as we know from Scripture. So it could be that as opposed to this idea that John the Baptist's disciples were following the Pharisees, this religious legalistic fasting, that likely they were fasting because they, they just lost their leader. He was in prison and they were fasting for God to, to protect him and to release him. But that is a conjecture. 
The Pharisees, though, however, very clearly were fasting uh, for various reasons un- uncommon to what Jesus would teach. The Pharisees are a Jewish sect that arose a few hundred years before Jesus in its, in its seed form. And they, they became so earnestly trying to obey everything about God that they became legalistic and outward conformists. And so they were clearly, at the time of Jesus, by the time we get to this moment, they were fasting to flaunt their spirituality. They were fasting because they figured they could earn better favor with God. The Old Testament law, if you really go back in Scripture, the Old Testament law of Moses only prescribed and commanded one fast per year on the Day of Atonement. That was when an Orthodox Jew would fast, according to the law of Moses. Later on, after the exilic period, after the exiles returned and so on, there were, there were other annual fasts commanded in Zechariah. There were four different kinds of annual fasts that were commanded. But by the time we get to Jesus, the Pharisees had, had ramped it up to the point where there were, they were fasting twice a week. <laughs> because all these others weren't good enough. They were fasting twice a week. That's how they had become. And they were also judging anybody who did not fast and pray as much as they did. And so Jesus, you can see, would, would be having run-ins with the Pharisees on every account. Next week, we are going to be talking about Sabbath and how the Pharisees observed the Sabbath, and how Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm not about that, because there was a constant friction. So Jesus was under the watchful eye of accusation. Just in chapter 2, you'll notice in verse 6, in verse 16, in verse 18, and in verse 24, Jesus is being questioned and criticized all kinds of times. Just four times in one chapter. Notice in chapter 3, verse 2, it says some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. I mean, that, you see this throughout the Gospel of Mark. He was under the watchful eye of accusation. And so, if we look at the words of Jesus, though, in the Sermon on the Mount, which Mark does not record, but Matthew does, Matthew's chapters 5 to 7, we get a little bit of uh, extra context about the Pharisees and about the kind of practices that Jesus commended us as his followers to observe as opposed to the way the religious community of his day was observing. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus has scathing comments reserved for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Sometimes he actually called them out by name, like in chapter 5, verse 20, or verse 46. But usually what he did was he just called them hypocrites. <laughs> he just had one word. He just said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And if you want to take a look at some other passages, there's some of the most scathing, ju- judging comments that Jesus ever reserved were for the religious leaders. You hypocrites. How dare you? treat people this way. And so when talking about giving, for example, in chapter 6 of Matthew, in verse 2, when talking about giving an offering like we did this morning, Jesus said, you hypocrites, you religious leaders, you love to announce it, and he uses exaggeration here, but he says, you like to announce it with trumpets. That's what you like to do. You like everybody to see how you're giving. And then he says in chapter 6 as well, and, uh, and later on in chapter 6, verse 5, or sorry, in chapter 6, verse 2, f- sorry, verse 5, when talking about praying, he says about the hypocrites, the religious leaders, you love 
to stand on street corners and pray so that everybody will see you. And then he goes on in verse 16 of this passage. He says, and when you're fasting, you love to put on your longest face, your, your saddest face, and go out into the public so that people will notice that you must be fasting today. You see, Jesus said at the beginning of chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, do not do these religious acts of righteousness to be seen by men. Don't do your giving, don't do your helping of others, don't do uh, your praying, and don't do your fasting. Don't do these things to be seen by others, because that's what the hypocrites did. You're not to be that way. Now, that's just putting the Pharisees in context, but what we need to notice just in passing is, I want you to notice that in Matthew 6, 2, 6, and 16, or 5 and 16, Jesus does not say, if you give an offering, or if you pray, or if you fast. He says, when you give an offering, when you pray, and when you fast. You see, Jesus expected his disciples, his followers, to be people who give offerings, who pray regularly, and who fast regularly. That's a given. That's an expectation. He's not going to give you rules and legalistic terms of, of how to engage in those things, but he's saying, I expect that out of the grace that I have given, people will abundantly give to others. People will respond with prayer to my Father in heaven, and people will fast and recognize that man was not made for bread alone, but for, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus expects us to be involved. I want to say that uh, I dare say that if I were to ask any average Christian, do you have a regular habit of prayer? They would say, yeah, yeah we, we, we pray at mealtime, and I pray before I go to sleep, I pray when I get up, you know. And do you have a regular habit about your offering, your giving habits? And they, you, most Christians would say, yes, I, we give to the church, and we give to this organization, and we give, you know, and then if I were to ask you, and what's your regular habit of fasting all about? <laughs> I don't think most Christians would say they have a regular habit of fasting. And I want to confess publicly today that when I it was in Thunder Bay, I did have a regular habit of fasting. And, and even in Bolivia, I observed fasting as a missionary in different ways. But I must confess that in the last three years since I've gotten to Canada again, Somehow it's just fallen off my radar. And I've become very haphazard about how I observe fasting. And I need to re-examine this because the Lord has brought it to my attention this week and I need to re-examine how I am going to fast. Now, I'm not going to tell you how I used to fast or how I fast now. I am not going to tell you because you're going to say that, well, we better do it this way because that's what Pastor Terry does. You see, that's one of the dangers in, in, in any kind of religious observance is the legalism that can set in and the comparison one to another. I don't think it's right that any of you know what anyone else gives to this church or any other organization. That's why it's not made public. Uh, I don't think that any one of us can judge how each other prays privately. That's none of your business. When you go to your father who sees in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like the hypocrites. We don't lay down rules about how much you need to give to our church, how much you need to read your Bible or pray, or how much you need to fast. These are not things that God wants us to be about because we are a community of grace. 
and we need to respond freely. That's why Paul says when he's teaching on giving, let no one give under compulsion, for God loves a hilarious and cheerful giver. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a bit about that on that stewardship weekend on November 17th. And so in, the, in, the, in this area of fasting, I'm not going to say you need to do this or that. I'm just saying, though, Jesus said when you do it. So he expects you to do it and examine it together. The next part of our message talks, I've, I've called it fasting as spiritual feasting. John Piper has written this in his book, Hunger for God. He said that it's the birthplace, fasting is the birthplace for Christian, for, if, sorry, that the birthplace for Christian fasting is homesickness for God. And he gets to the heart of this text that we're looking at today in that one sentence. In this age, he says, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately, as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. We hunger for so much more of him, and that is why we fast. Jesus teaches this in the, in, through the means of a few metaphors that we look at now. And the metaphors, the primary metaphor has to do with uh, a wedding, a Jewish wedding feast. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 19, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is still with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. Can you imagine going to a wedding reception here in Winnipeg at some wonderful ballroom that's been rented? Can you imagine that all the guests have arrived, they're seated around the banquet tables, and they're waiting for the bridal party to come? And then finally the bridal party marches in, they go to the head table, the bride and the groom come in, there's cheers, there's clapping, everybody's there, everybody's assembled, and everybody sits down and prays, and then the, the master of ceremony says, we will now enter into a time of fasting. I don't, I don't know how many guests would stick around. You see, you don't fast when the bridegroom is, and the bride are present, that's something that we'll, we'll have time for that when we, when we miss them, when they're no longer here. Like my, my daughter and her bride, bridegroom who are in Brazil, I miss them. You see, Jesus says in this, Jesus is saying, my death and my resurrection are coming. My ascension into the heavens when I go to be with the Father is coming. And at that time, when the church age begins, my disciples, my followers will fast. But right now, Jesus says, when he's there, I, I am here and my disciples will not fast. You see, in this age that we live in, the church age, the age that is between the two comings of Christ, the age that I spoke of last week as the already but not yet age that we live in, this age is when we are to, to, called to be in fasting and observe fasting, but not the age when Jesus was yet on the earth and his disciples were among uh, with him. And so uh, Jesus teaches that through this metaphor of, of um, the bridegroom and the bridal practices. So in essence then, Christian fasting, New Testament fasting, is God's people saying Maranatha, the, that last word of the whole Bible. Maranatha means come, Lord Jesus. Christian fasting is all about us longing for Jesus, longing for more of him. He is not here. We miss him. 
We do not see His kingdom coming in its fullness. We only see His kingdom coming in, in fits and starts, in places here and there. We long for His return. We long for the King to come and usher in the fullness of His kingdom. And so we pray for that. And we fast because we miss Him. And you know, right after Jesus ascended, we read in the book of Acts various times when the disciples fasted. But not when Jesus was with them. Now maybe you have read chapter 2 of Mark and verses 21 and 22 various times. And you have been as confused about it in the past as I have been. When Jesus talks about this passage of having a piece of unshrunk cloth and you don't sew it onto a, a, another garment or a new piece of cloth to an old garment or new wine into old wineskins. And I remember for years and years I was so confused about that until one day I remember reading John Piper's book Hunger for God and he just said, why do we, why do we make such a thing of this? We're just carry on in the context. In all three times where Jesus talks about these metaphors, it is in the context of fasting. Okay? In all three synoptic gospels, that's how it's referred to. So why do we not then naturally refer to these two metaphors as a reference to therefore fasting? And with that in mind, what does Jesus mean then? In verses 16 and 17, Jesus uses two metaphors, old garments and old wineskins, to refer to the Jewish customs of the Old Testament. The old garments and the old wineskins are the Old Testament practices of fasting that the Jews were commanded to. And the patch of unshrunk cloth and the new wine is the new representation of the new reality that came with Jesus. The wine of the kingdom is requiring a new kind of fasting. The old, the old will not contain the new. Jesus could not be confined to observe Sabbath the way the Old Testament commanded Sabbath. And so Jesus came along and He healed people on the Sabbath. Jesus could not be confined and His disciples to the way that the Old Testament observed fasting because Jesus said that I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I'm Lord of fasting, and so on. And so <clears throat> what, we, what we learn from this is that the new wine of the kingdom requires a new type of fasting. Just as in next week's message we will be talking about how the kingdom also requires a new observance of, fast, of, the, of the Sabbath. And so if we try to get more out of these two metaphors, if we try to get more out of this text than what, what, what we've just described, then we do an injustice to the Scripture. We're, we're misinterpreting. For the intent that Jesus had was simple. Jesus is simply saying, you do not fit the kingdom practices of my followers into the old wineskins and old garments of the Judaism that came out of the law of Moses. You cannot do it. I have come to do a new thing. And that's what Jesus is teaching. So fasting, in the way that Jesus teaches, is an opportunity to test and to express your longing for Christ compared with all the other affections of your heart. That, in a nutshell, is what Jesus teaches fasting is all about today. Now, if you want to fast for different reasons, that's up to you. If you want to fast for some dietary reason, that's completely up to you. If you want to fast because you're burdened for the lost soul of a friend or loved one, that's up to you. 
God's Word does have different reasons for fasting. You can engage in those. But if we look at the fundamental New Testament teaching on fasting, it is to say this, that Jesus is not among us right now, and we ought to long for His appearing. Because whatever it might be in goodness today, in this church age, it is nothing in comparison how, with how good it will be when the King Himself returns physically to gather up His church. And so we test ourselves by fasting. We enter into fasting, therefore, by saying, Lord has other toys, have other affections taken control of my heart so that now you are usurped from your throne. Do I long for your return like I ought to? Or is life pretty good right now? Do I enjoy the way that I can make my own living, provide for my own needs, have my great life, and so on? And, and who needs Jesus to... Re who's longing for Him? You see, that's a concern. That ought to be a concern. And so... As uh, Richard Foster says in his book, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. I talked to a young person in our church about a month ago, and she had observed a 30-day media fast because she felt that that texting and movies and videos and all that stuff was too important to her and she observed a 30-day media fast and in that time she was she was militant she just ignored that stuff and, and it tested her devotion to Christ what is it that controls you and I if we were to look at the examine the, the effects that, that other things have on our hearts how are we responding Again, I'll quote Piper when he says that the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink, drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love for God is not his enemies, but his gifts, you see. What are the things that God has given you that have become so, so enormous in your heart that now they have usurped Jesus himself? And so we fast to test the affections of our heart. Do I long for Jesus more than anything else? That's why I have in your bulletin insert... That, that passage, that lovely passage in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing upon earth that I desire beside. Can you say that? There is nothing on earth I desire besides thee. I want to tell you, I confess I cannot say that all the time. We've got to go with, to the Lord with confession. We've got to say, Lord, I, I confess that I love my food. Man, I want you to go home today and enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. Because God says you... God gave you these things to enjoy, but God did not give you anything to take the place of His Son as supreme. Let me just share with you before I share the final three questions, and then Kevin and the team will come to share in the last song, but let me just share with you three warnings that I believe are come out of Scripture, and then I'm going to share a couple of questions for reflection. The three warnings that I will share 
Number one is, food is good. <laughs> amen to that. I thought I'd hear an amen to that. Food is good. You know, we love our food. God gave us food to enjoy. And so you should receive food with thanksgiving to God and be grateful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, when I fast, I say to my body, body, you will not control me. Today, I'm controlling you and you will not eat because I'm, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. But when we sit down at the table to receive a Thanksgiving meal or whatever meal, you receive it with thanks. God is good. Food is good. God has given it. Do not twist this sermon around in that way. Second point of warning, I would say, is there is nothing spiritually good that comes from abusing your body. Okay? No kind of ascetic practice that might have been practiced by monks and all kinds of religious groups throughout the ages there's no good that comes spiritually from punishing this body. God does not teach that. Okay, and then thirdly, the last warning is, be careful to not talk too openly about your own practices in this area, except maybe with trusted friends that are walking it out together, because pride enters into this area, any religious practice, so easily. Pride can enter in so very easily, and that's why I believe that most often this fasting is a private matter between you and God, which the Sermon on the Mount teaches. So finally, last questions for reflection. What are the things that your heart longs for? What are you having a hard time letting go of? What is it that controls you? And could you be transparent with one other friend on that? Just to say, you know what? Uh, TV has become too important to me. I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to observe a week of no TV. Would you help me on accountability in this area? And you pray it through with me. Just one brother or sister that's doing that. That's an excellent example. Or observe a fast. Start small. If you've never fasted before, start small. And just say, well, I realize I love my food. I'm, going to just, I'm just going to try missing one meal this time or two meals and so on. And then lastly, could you, re could you do without one of these things? just to test and to show your devotion to Christ. Let's uh, conclude with a song. And the song's words are appropriate because it talks about surrendering. And uh, I would ask you to just bow with me in prayer as we get ready to sing that song. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word and, and for Jesus' teaching on fasting. Uh, Lord, there's so much confusion that can come around this. We do not fast to gain any favor with you. We have all the favor we could ever have because of Jesus, and it's all by his grace. But Lord, we do want to fast in order to test our heart's devotion and our heart's longing for Jesus. We get so comfortable on this earth. We've made a comfortable life for ourselves, and, and in that comfort, with all the good gifts that you've given us, Lord, we worship these things sometimes. We confess our sin. We worship food. We worship pleasure. We worship the good gifts that you've given us. We, we pray that you would help us to examine our hearts and to have hearts that truly respond to your goodness and keep Jesus 
at the very center of our affections. Lord, you are worthy, and nothing else is. We pray in your name. Amen.